Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Richard Goodman, and um, I'm here with Will McFarlane. Yep. And um, the name of this podcast is Transplants. And basically what that means is people who have spent a lot of time in their life in one place and have now come to another place and a radically different place. And either it's voluntary or involuntary. I don't mean they've been kidnapped or anything, but, <laughs> but that um, maybe they were young and their parents took them to one place and now their parents have brought them to another place. Or it could simply be that um, you, know, you lived in one place for many years and now for whatever reason, retirement, another job, uh, you've come to another different place. And um, this, I got this inspiration to talk about this from my own experience. I spent 35 years in New York. As a New Yorker, uh, I came there as a young man. Um, I got a job there. Um, I grew up there, really. It was a place that I found to, I felt at home there. And um, I married there, had a child there, divorced there. Um, continued living there, uh, wrote my first book there, um, a number of things. And then I was a freelancer for many years and struggling at, as freelancers do, but as I got older, it was more and more arduous. And um, I would always apply for these jobs, teaching jobs. And one day I applied for a job at the University of New Orleans almost reflexively. And um, long story short, I got the job very late in the summer to begin very early in the fall. So I packed up everything and I came to New Orleans, a city I'd never been to before. So I thought I would talk about that um, and my experiences of being a New Yorker and then a New Orleanian. And now I'm out near Lafayette and that's even a bigger transplant in the way. But I wanted to talk to Will because well, your experience begins in Cairo, doesn't it? Yep, Cairo, Egypt. And so can you tell people exactly how you ended up there? And So my dad was an executive with Amico, uh, Amico Oil, before British Petroleum bought them up. Uh, and so we, we were all, he was all over the world uh, and eventually got transferred to Cairo so that he could work in... Uh, for lack of a better term, I would call it a company city. It was it was called Rashakir, uh, but I think Amico pretty much owned the entire city. Uh, it, it was smaller than Lafayette, maybe about the size of Metairie, uh, but was nothing but oil fields and barracks and warehouses. I don't think there were even any grocery stores. There, there was like gas stations for their fuel trucks and stuff like mm. that. Uh, but people would fly in, uh, fly in and fly out. Uh, so we lived in, we moved, uh, shoot, I, I was less than a year old. They were supposed to transfer in 77 uh, and then couldn't because my mom was too pregnant to fly with me. Uh, so I was born in London. And then I want to say by the time I was eight months old, we were on a plane to Cairo. Hmm. Uh, and lived in Cairo where my dad worked uh, worked in Rashakir so he would fly out Monday morning 
uh, to Raja Kir fly back in on Fridays. So I really only saw him on the weekends for most of my, my childhood. Uh, and then I want to say in... I don't have a memory of this. I would have been too young, but my parents talked about it while my dad was still alive. My mom still occasionally talks about it. But in 81, the end of 81, I want to say around, like I think it was October of 81, Anwar Sadat was assassinated. And during that time, I was going to a school called CAC, which stood for Cairo American College. Uh, and it was just a, a walled compound with like armed guards it's where mm. all the all the kids from the oil companies all the kids from the consulates all the, the just everybody that was a transplant went to school or had children who were transplants went to school there uh, and I remember or I don't remember but I remember the stories my parents told me is when the revolution happened after Anwar Sadat was assassinated uh, my parents didn't see me or my brother for about three days because they put CAC into lockdown. Uh, so, so they had bomb shelters and bunkers underneath the school to protect not necessarily us, but definitely those diplomat kids. Uh, and so they put us in those bomb shelters for three days while, while there was rioting wow. in the streets. And then when the rioting calmed down, they released us to our parents. Uh, and then me and my parents moved to Georgia for about a year to let all of that calm down. And once the new government was in place, we moved back to Cairo. And I lived there until I was about 15 when we moved to Louisiana, when my dad retired. Okay, uh, let me back up a little bit here. Yeah. So you were living in that city that you described? It was in Oral, or were you actually living in Cairo? No, we were, we were in Cairo. My dad was living during the week in Rashakir. Oh, okay, that's where he flew in. So how yeah. far was that from Cairo? Not, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure. I would have to look it up, but I want to say not far. Not it, far? Yeah, because my dad always described it as like a one-hour flight. It was not far uh, Okay, okay. So presumably that would be near the coast, right? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, and I don't think, I think flying was the, like, by plane or by boat was the only way to get it, to Rashakir at the time. I don't know if there there may be roads in and out now. Well, this would be uh, such an interesting thing to go into in more detail, the sort of colonialism of, of owning a town or <laughs> in, in the middle of another country. Yep. Uh, but so what I want to get at, I guess you can have British citizenship if you want, right? Yes, yeah, the, the U.S. doesn't recognize dual citizenship, but the U.K. does. U.K. does, okay. Yeah. So what I want to get at is your first conscious uh, awareness of your surroundings when you start to have memories of where you are. When, how old were you about when you realized, oh, here I am in Cairo? Probably five, four or five. Maybe. So you're four or five, and you're living in Cairo, and you're going to this school. Are you going to the school then? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so presumably somebody takes you to the school in a limo or something? <laughs> it was really – we lived so close to it that my, my brother's 10 years older than I am. Uh, so behind – we lived in uh, – I guess it, it was kind of a mix between what you would call here – uh, a condo and an apartment complex. Yeah. We lived on a, like a, th a third story walk up. Uh, and each floor was essentially a condo. Um, and then right behind that was for lack of a better term, a junkyard. 
just an empty I, I don't think it was technically a junkyard I think it was an empty piece of property where people just dumped trash yeah, yeah. Uh, and then on the other side of that was CAC okay so, so they, it was really like a walk of a, a block and a half oh so you and, walked to school and so my brother would walk me every a walk day you, yeah. okay so where did you understand where you were when you first started? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot what age did you say you were when you were consciously oh, like, began to be aware? Like four or five. Four or five. Six, okay, yeah. you're starting to have memories then, right? Yeah. And so you get up and you go to school. Are you actually in Cairo where you see souks and you see? Oh yeah, yeah. We okay. were we were uh, CAC is uh, I want to say really close to Tahrir Square. Uh, so yeah, we're practically the center of Cairo. And I mean, Cairo is a hu- huge place. It's, yeah. I want to, I, I think, I don't know what the population is now, but last time I checked, it was something like nine and a half million people. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we were, we were kind of dead center, uh, in Cairo. So we were like, we could hear daily calls to prayers from all the mosques because they would do that over loudspeaker. Um, we were not that far from uh, a couple of ghettos, as well as like the way the way Cairo was set out set up. From what I remember, is it, it was the epitome of urban sprawl, like no planning, just people mm. just puts property down. Yeah, uh, and so you would get ghettos next to nice neighborhoods, next to bazaars, next to really fancy bougie. Uh, uh, markets for lack of a better term uh so like in the bazaar you might get you know like cheap furniture cheap rugs baskets uh handmade stuff whereas in the markets you would get like uh the nice silks the good spices the nice vegetables and yeah yeah uh and so it was kind of a hodgepodge everywhere you looked you couldn't really Right. There, there was no rhyme or reason to where <laughs> things were, how they were set up. So when when a kid grows up, what, what their situation is, is what normality is. What and However, yeah. did you know what America was? Did you know you were in a foreign country and that it wasn't? I did. Uh, mostly we would spend uh, a couple of weeks every summer in... Uh, in either New Orleans or in Tupelo, Mississippi, uh-huh. which is where New Orleans is where my mom's parents lived, my grandparents, and Tupelo was where my her uh, great aunt lived, her her mother's sister, uh, and so during the summer we would come okay. back and and spend time. So with what, them. what what year are we talking about when you're let's say seven or eight years old, maybe it something? Eighty three. Eighty three. Okay, 84. so. Um, wow, what a, I'm just trying to, I don't even know what to ask because <laughs> I think around that time, wasn't that the Lebanon, Lebanese war between Israel and mm-hmm. Lebanon? Yep. So, um, well, did, what did the you? The 80s th- was full of that kind of conflict in that region. What too. was? The 80s. Uh, the 80s, yeah. General, the, yes, yes. So, um, did you feel like an American? Who did you even think about that? You just I really didn't think you about didn't it. Think yeah. You were just a kid growing up, yeah. And you came back, and uh, must have been a long plane flight. That's for sure. I think I, I remember. I want to say fourteen hours. Yeah. 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 So, um, did you did you hang with the kids you hang hung out with? Were they all 
in that school, so they were all foreigners of or uh, Americans or British or kids or. There was a good. There's a, a big group of like, so yeah, foreign kids, not not native kids that I hung out with that were from all over the place. Uh, I remember one of my my close friends at the time was. Uh, uh, I can't remember what his dad did, but he was from Germany. The, the, his entire family was from Germany. Mm. Um, yeah. And then, but then there was also like the kids that uh, were Amico kids, like myself. So my dad had you know buddies that he worked yeah. with, uh, and so there were a couple of Amico kids. Uh, but then there were like a lot of, especially where we lived, there were a lot of local kids. Uh, and and my parents had, because my dad was gone like all five days out of the week practically, um, my mom hired help to help with me and my brother, uh, local help. Uh, and she had children that she would bring along and we would play while she was like helping around the house. So they were Egyptian kids? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so did your parents have any um restrictions on that did they want to keep you away from the locals did they not really uh we we mingled pretty much with everybody i don't feel like i think the only time they were ever scared for our safety was uh during the revolution of 81 and that and i think that was just because they couldn't they couldn't put their eyes on us they couldn't put their hands on us and they couldn't get in touch with anybody at the school well that would make sense yeah so Uh, but other than that uh and i i say that there there were a couple of there are a couple of neighborhoods where they would get more nervous if we were passing through yeah uh but other than that they were pretty calm about it they people are people wherever you go Uh, sure did so, you did did they take you to see the pyramids and things like that? Did oh yeah, yeah. We went we went to the pyramids at Giza. Um, we did a, we did a lot of, uh, or at least me and my mom did, and my brother did a lot of traveling and sightseeing. So we went to Jordan. We went to Israel. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Georgia. Um, we spent a little bit of time, like we went to Giza a couple times a year, uh, because that's a. 20 minute drive from Cairo pretty much it's not far you I mean when, you can see Giza from, from when you say Georgia I'm getting the feeling you mean the country near Russia yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay because that's where took- we that's where we evacuated to in uh during during 81 is because you, because there's oil there is that because my dad had work there yeah, yeah. And, and they yeah. want they were like okay well you can't stay in the country but we want you working wow there's another boy you, <laughs> you've been transplanted like more times than a you know whatever but right. that so georgia is that a muslim country uh not pr- there is a a large muslim or at least there was in the 80s there's yeah. a large muslim population but i don't think it's i think okay. it's i think it's majority uh, I, I can't even remember it it's an orthodox christian state, uh, okay but I can't yeah remember the name of so how old were you when you moved to georgia um oh i would have been two or three. Oh, two. Yeah, th- th- that was right after. Oh. And we'd only stayed for about a year or two. But then we would go back and visit because my dad had fa- uh, not family but friends, close friends that worked and lived there. Okay. So how long in total did you live in Cairo? Um, about? about f- I left when I was 15, and one of those years we weren't there, so about 14 years. So you are becoming an adolescent in Cairo. Yep, yeah. <laughs> what was that like? It was... Uh, it was interesting. Uh, there, because of like the nature of where we lived, and uh, 
the people around us. It wasn't, it, it was kind of a shell shock when I got to the U.S. Uh, just because teenagers are different here. They're a lot more mm. outgoing. They're yeah. like, they're, there's not as much like, uh, especially with like Egyptian kids, there's a, a lot of, uh, their parents tend to be, and this is anecdotal, this is just my experience, but their t- parents always tended to seem really strict to mm, me mm. Uh, with letting them out, especially when there was like a mix of boy-girls. It was less strict when it was all boys sure. or, or all girls. Yeah. Uh, but when I came to the States, I remember thinking, wow, like parents just like let their kids <laughs> yes. like walk the streets after dark and like roam around and, and do stuff. Yeah. And, and my parents were kind of that way in Cairo. There was just no one for me to do that with. Yeah. Uh, so I could have done that in Cairo, but there was nobody to hang out with after dark. Yeah. Or like, so there's when I was becoming an adolescent, it was all, it always felt like if I was visiting with friends or a girl or anything like that, it was always under somebody's very watchful yeah, eye. I'll bet. I'll you bet. Know? Yeah. Uh, but, but when I moved here, that presence was gone, that presence standing yeah. behind us, watching us do stuff, yeah. it kind of disappeared. Um, so I'd like to just chat a little bit about my own experience and see if there's commonalities in the, yeah. in, in the sense of being transplanted or, or, or transplanting yourself. So when I came to New York, um, I really never was, um, I'd lived in a place that I felt was home, not, not the place I grew up in and um, not my first couple of cities that I lived in, Detroit and Chicago and then Boston. But when I came to New York, I felt within two weeks that I belong there. And yeah. I, I think this is a feeling that um, you, you just can't deny. There's no way of proving it, but you know it's irrefutable. You, you just feel yeah. it. It's a sense. So I lived there happily, really, for the most part, for 35 years and uh, still love the city and, and feel like it's deep inside of me. Um, but, you know, I left for economic reasons. Um, I just was not making enough money to cover this exorbitant rent for a place I didn't even like. Yeah. And um, I got this job offer to be a visiting professor at the University of New Orleans. And I didn't even think twice about it. I, I just packed up my car and, and drove down and ended up in the, for the first year in the French Quarter. Okay. Um, but I missed New York terribly, and um, I flew back maybe five or six times that first year just to, like, touch the ground. Yeah. Um, and New Orleans and New York, they're, they're, I'm sure there's similarities, and now that I've got a little distance, I can think of a few. But um, they, it didn't seem very similar to me. The, the two cities didn't seem very similar to me at the beginning. Um, and um, now, of course, I'm in a completely different place. But um, I never felt at home in New Orleans. I, I found it incredibly interesting, and I miss it yeah. a lot. I mean, it really was a privilege to live there. Um, but uh, I never felt I, – I felt not homeless, but I felt displaced in a way, voluntarily – yeah, but I miss that sense of being home, and I'm wondering if that happened to you at all, or whether it you did. Had... It did. Yeah, I, I had. Uh, so we didn't move immediately to Lafayette. Uh, my dad was first transferred to New Orleans from Cairo, uh, but we never lived in New Orleans. We lived across the causeway in. Uh, 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 Grant, um, what's it? Covington. Yes, thank you, Covington. 
so we would spend all, my grandparents lived in New Orleans still at the time. So we'd spend a lot of time in New Orleans, but I was living in Covington and Covington is nothing like anywhere I had ever been up until that point. I'd never really experienced rural life. And I, and I, I know some people probably listening to this that are familiar with Covington are going to be yelling at their podcast that that's not rural life. <laughs> yeah. But when you come from a city of nine and a half million people, yeah. that feels like rural life. Yeah. It feels like the country. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I was, I was homesick and kind of miserable for the first couple of years. Um, not, you know, just kind of in a, in a ennui kind of way. Just yeah. like, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I yeah. was unfamiliar with my surroundings. You were how old? About? Uh, I was about 15. Oh, this is when you first this, moved. Yeah, this uh, is okay. when we first moved back. Okay. Uh, and we lived there for a couple of years before my dad got transferred to the office here in Lafayette and right after that I think British Petroleum bought out, bought out Amico and he retired uh, and he was reaching retirement age at that point anyway so it wasn't a big deal he was ready to retire uh, but once I moved out of, a lot of that went away for one reason or another once I moved to Lafayette and I don't know if it's that Lafayette felt to me more like a, a city or if it's the fact that my mom uh, actually went to college and high school here. She went mm. to Lafayette High and, mm -hmm. then, to, and then to, uh, at the time, it would have been uh, USL. Or actually, I, I think it might have been before it was USL. You know, I want to just pause because yeah. with the optimistic view that this might be heard by people outside of this area, <laughs> um, we should say that uh, Lafayette is about two and a half hours west of New Orleans, and it's yes. really in the heart of what's called Cajun country, yeah, they call it the hub city because we're we're practically dead center of southwest Louisiana or de south Louisiana. Yeah, um, and uh, it's a very different city than New Orleans, uh, but it has its own very strong culture and traditions. Um, a lot, of course, uh, stemming from the Acadians, the people came from Nova Scotia down yep. here, yeah, French-speaking people. A lot of French Acadians down here, a lot of... Uh, a lot of Creole, but not, I guess not as much Creole as you would see in New Orleans. It seems yeah. like they've got a much larger Creole population in New Orleans. Yeah. So uh, so you moved. Your move is, wow, Cairo to Covington. That sounds like the title of a book. And then, <laughs> and then Lafayette. And then Lafayette, yeah. And I, and I think one of the reasons, and I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I, I don't know if maybe I'd gotten over some of my homesickness while I was in Covington or if it was the fact that because my mom went to high school and college here, she had a lot of friends still living here who mm -hmm. had children about my age. Uh, and so it was a little easy. Like, once we moved here, it was easier for me to make friends than it ever had been for me in Covington. I uh, wonder if you know any of my girlfriend's kids. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's possible. They grew up here. The Godet family. Uh, it's not ringing a bell, okay. but, it, but it's entirely possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... One of the books that I read and uh, that really impressed me the most and is a French writer named Simone Veil. I don't know if you know her work or not, but um, she uh, wrote a book called The Need for Roots. And um, I really feel that book struck home. For her, she died during World War II. She was uh, grew up in France and then went to England during the war. Um, 
And as a measure of solidarity, she would only eat, she was a little bit nutty, but brilliant. As a measure of solidarity, she would only eat the amount of food that the people in Paris were given in their, with their rations. Okay. So she eventually yeah. died of malnutrition. malnutrition. Yeah, oh, that's um, a shame. I know. But um, also, the, the book, is Need for Roots, is really good. And uh, with, it's got an introduction by T.S. Eliot. So she's not just some fly-by-night wacko. Uh, but for her, one of the worst crimes was to uproot people. Right. was to take their roots away from them. So she hated the Nazis, but she also hated the Roman Empire. <laughs> it's really, it's almost as much. So this whole idea of having roots, and, you know, in French it's racine, and when you take up a roots, it's déraciné, which I love. That just sounds like a fancier, funnier, more poetic word than uproot, but still the yeah. principle's the same. Um, I, I felt uprooted. and um, Same. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was a, a, a very jarring uh, show. And also, I feel like I didn't, and, and this could have been just because I was still, you know, a child, but I, I felt like I didn't have very much notice. It felt like one day we were living our lives in Cairo, and then the next day we were packing up and on a plane. And I, I know it didn't happen that fast, but in my mind, that it was yeah. kind of that quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it's funny that you mentioned her uh, eating just the amount of rations that, uh, you know, her fellow French citizens were being allocated during the war because it, it reminds me of, I had to, and I still do this sometimes, my wife makes fun of me for it, but I had to break some of my eating habits that I had picked up in Cairo uh, because people thought they were weird. So here, for instance, when you really enjoy something, you clean your plate, yes, for seconds. Yeah. In Cairo, if, if, you, uh, if you clean your plate, that means you automatically want seconds. You don't have to ask. They're just going to mm. serve you seconds. Mm. Uh, they'll take your plate. They, they will just see that it's empty, take it away, and fill it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the polite thing to do is eat almost everything and leave just a little bit of everything behind. Mm. And that says, I really enjoyed my meal, but I'm done. I'm mm. full. Mm. Uh, and the more of the stuff you leave behind... So, like, if I eat everything on my plate except for, say, the mashed potatoes, then that says I want everything except for the mashed potatoes. Oh. Uh, and so there's there's this whole, like, culture around how you eat your food in Cairo that I had to, like, break myself of because I would, I would go to, say, Burger King with my girlfriend and leave, like, a bite of hamburger and, <laughs> and three fries, and she could never understand why. And it was because I didn't want sex. It was just – it was – instinct for me to do that you know kind of hard to explain it yeah. at the drop of a hat right um so um now i moved my time at the university of new orleans i retired and i met a woman who uh i fell in love with and she is from here she grew up in lafayette and her parents and grandparents i think great grandparents are all from here her grandfather spoke French, and grandmother did too, but she, she lives in Scott, actually in Austin, out in the country, and so to be with her, I moved to her place from New Orleans, so it, that's even more of a radical transplant for me, because I figured out that I live... That's the country. That <laughs> is the country. That is the country. I lived yeah. 50 years of my life in cities, in yeah. New York, and that's New really Orleans, the country. and this has been a, a real... You know, I use the word transplant, but I'm not sure I've been planted yet. <laughs> I think I'm still in the holding bin. Or, right. um, 
but you found yourself growing roots here. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I would consider this my home now. And is, is this because mostly because of your, your mother's friends here and you felt more acclimated or another reason? Well, I, I definitely feel like that allowed me to acclimate quickly. Uh, but then just like finishing high school here, going to college here, meeting my wife here, my wife, who is also another transplant, mm-hmm. um, meeting my wife here, getting married here. My, my dad's, uh, like I said, my grandparents were from here before they passed away. Both sets, actually. My dad's parent, my, my mom's parents were uh, wealthier New Orleans socialites and uh to hear my dad tell it, his parents were dirt farmers from Generet. Uh-huh. So, okay. So he grew up with, uh, I want to say, six sisters and four brothers on a really tiny, poor farm in Generet. Where is Generet? Uh, it's kind of, it's not far from here, actually. Uh, it's right by, let me bring it up. Generet. It's about... You know where Baldwin or Franklin are? Uh, it's it's if you go mm. down I ten towards Texas, I or no, I'm sorry, I'm I'm going in the wrong way. That's where my that's where his brothers are now. Uh, Generates in between here and uh, New Iberia. Okay, so and it's a little tiny town. Just like if you're driving I ninety towards New Iberia, at some point you'll take a left and drive out into some fields, and okay. eventually you'll see farmhouses and. Small, like a small post office, small grocery store, tiny little town in between here and New Iberia. So you're you're past the airport. You keep going. Yep. And about halfway to New Iberia, you'll you'll uh, hang half, a left okay. and, and just kind of drive out yeah. into the fields. You know, it's funny. I'm 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 glad you brought that up because the landscape here is so different than what I'm. I mean, in New Orleans, it's a city, and it may be a distinct city and have its own architecture. It certainly does. But it's not this place where I'm living out in the country at all. Yeah. And um, I was driving into New Orleans the other day and over Lake Pontchartrain, and it was kind of windy and the water was a little rough. Uh, and I thought, wow, this reminds me of the ocean because I grew up in Virginia on the water, and I really miss that. So um, you can be uprooted from water in a way too because I don't yep. really – uh, this this landscape doesn't speak to me in the way that the landscape does that I grew up in or I'm familiar with. And um, I miss that. I feel, and I'm not quite sure how to replace that except for going to visit those places. And, and I wonder if, if you, if people like us even can, because I'm, I mean, I'm back when I was 15, I'm in my 40s now, and I still get like nostalgic glimpses of, of, like Cairo and Giza and the Nile and like going to the Black Sea and things like that, just things that I f- remember fondly and that I would really have to, I, I don't think I could recreate anywhere else. I'd have to go back sure. to those places if I wanted to. Maybe a movie, but that isn't. Yeah. So uh, have you been back? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I, I wanted to go back in uh, right after I graduated college in 2001 uh, and life kind of happened I just didn't get a chance to uh and then again when I I I thought about going back several years after that 
Uh, and again, life, uh, life got in the way. I met my wife, we kind of got engaged and it, it just ended up not being the right time. And then they were at the time too, were having some civil strife and it wasn't like the best time yeah. to travel to that area. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think that, that we are, there's part of us that are, that are, it's really delicate in the sense of like plants with roots. Right. And uh, when you're yanked up from a place, as I say, whether it's voluntary or involuntary or some combination of the two, still it happens and you're seeking to find roots. And it sounds like you have transplanted well. I have. I have. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I, I do miss the traveling. I miss being in different countries all the time. Uh, but that's why I keep my passport up to date. Mm. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, th- I want to thank you for talking to me today. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you could. I think we there could be a lot more to be said about this. And and in fact, I think as I've been talking to you and thinking about it myself, I realize that I don't really know what it is I want to talk about in a way till we get to talking about things. Yeah, right. And, and then the idea of what it is and what transplants, tra- being transplanted means comes to me in, in different phases or different portions, as it were. Yeah. You know? um, I'm going to I'm gonna have to get my wife to come down, uh, my wife Jennifer, to come down here and join you for one because she, uh, she was also a transplant, but kind of an, I don't know that she was ever given the, you talk about pulling up roots. I don't know if she was ever given the chance until she was an adult to put any roots down because she moved so often. Yeah. Uh, so she was, because her dad was in air force, she was living in the Philippines and then in Japan uh, and then, uh, just in the East in general. I think they lived in Hawaii for a little while. Uh, and just flying to all these different countries in the back of C-130s and sling seats, uh-huh. just trying, you know, trying to go wherever, yeah, yeah. wherever the Air Force sent him. Uh, and so I don't think until he retired from the Air Force and they moved here uh, that was she even really able to put down any roots. Hey, well, if she wants to come in, I would love to have her uh, be part of this. Yeah, and she enjoys talking about it. Good. You know, one last thing I was thinking, Katrina, well, you bring up Katrina, and of course it's this overwhelming thing. And um, But I was thinking that in my experience in New Orleans, talking to people about Katrina again and again, those who had been through it, and of course I heard all the terrible stories of houses being flooded, and but the thing that stays with me so much is all these people being uprooted and families really not doing too well under the pressure because in some cases you'd have a family of let's say three or four kids but they they all weren't able to go to the same place so they'd be uprooted from New Orleans and two of the kids would go with the mother someplace and two of the kids would go with the father or one kid would go by him or herself somewhere and you know the stories are you know they'd end up in Salt Lake City or someplace radically different and I know a lot of people stayed but that what I'm getting at is that the the residual effect of being uprooted from Katrina, um, for me, was one of the things that I just hadn't really understood. So yeah, um, but that's another tale. That's uh, another tale. Yeah, that was that was a, a sad a sad situation. I, we Lafayette was very lucky that we dodged that Katrina Rita bullet. Yeah, so to speak, but. We did end up with a lot of New Orleans transplants here that needed a lot of help, and it, it, 
thankfully as a community we kind of were able to come together and find hotel rooms and food and stuff like but it yeah. even even with that kind of help i can't imagine how traumatic that type of uprooting yeah. must have been on a yeah. family because that's that's nobody's made that decision for you then mother nature made that decision yeah, for you yeah. in the blink of an eye you know well I think we'll close now, but I'm just thinking, I mean, the world situation seems in, in many ways to be one more of uprootedness than stability. And some people are, are never going to be transplanted. They're just in limbo. But yeah, uh, we can't solve everything, can we? <laughs> <laughs> we, sure, we can try. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Will, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank um, you. And I'll just sign off now. Thank you for having me. Press. The black, no, the black yeah. one?